Great. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Good. Uh, just before I share what I feel God's put in my heart to share with you this morning, I do just want to reiterate what Lily was saying earlier on about getting help. You know, Peter was in prison and the chains fell off his wrists, but he was still in prison. And he needed the angel to steer him out of that prison. And when he got out and he went to the house of his uh, friends, he found that they were there praying for him. And so I do want to encourage you. Uh, you know, the chains fall off, but we do need help on that journey. And I just want to, again, reiterate, go and see Andy and Hazel if there's something that's specific that you need prayer for to work through as part of that process of the chains coming off and you moving into the freedom that God has for you. Go and see them because the Lighthouse Ministry does and is very effective. Uh, I've worked with Andy on a, f- a few occasions and seen people's lives tra- transformed during an hour and a half session um, with him. And, and all I'm doing is sitting there praying because that's all he's asked me to do. I'm not allowed to speak, actually. He says, you, you sit there and pray. Can't get a word in edgeways. <laughs> There's a subtext in that. Um, <laughs> um, Yeah, and I just sit there and pray, and sometimes God puts something on my heart about the person, about the situation. I'm praying. Andy asked the question, please, Andy, God, will you help Andy to steer it that way and ask the question? And I get frustrated because Andy's going off in all sorts of different directions. Then suddenly, Holy Spirit speaks to Andy, and he asks the question, and it's a breakthrough in that person's life. So, yeah, it really is good. Go and see them if there's stuff that you need help with. Okay, um, so this morning I want to look at some verses in Acts chapter 15. I want to look at two different things this morning, two slightly different things, which I hope at the end I'm going to pull together and you'll see the connection between the two of them. Okay, so we're in Acts chapter 15. Um, I've lost the picture here, so Okay. So it says, uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 6 to start off with. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. Okay, so let me just unpack this a little bit of what's going on here. So Paul started out on one of his missionary journeys and has been teaching and preaching. And along come these uh, Jewish believers who say, you've got to teach them that they've got to keep the Jewish laws. And at this point, let me say that there is the place where you can be saved 
and still living in the old life and not living in the freedom of what God has for you. So you need to ask yourself the question, what are some of the things that were from the past that don't belong to the now, now I've become a Christian? What are some of the things that are a drain and, and, a, and a burden on me that were from my old life that are still there today that need to be dealt with? Because that's what these um, Jewish believers were, were teaching. They wanted to put this burden back on them, on the new believers, on these Gentile believers, and it caused a bit of a ruckus. And so a delegation was sent back to Jerusalem where the apostles were and the elders of the church to sort the question out. And so we move on to verse 13. In between where we left off and where we're going to read next, um, Peter has had his say. He said, guys, I was the one that God came to and spoke to me about taking the good news to the Gentiles. And when I, when I spoke to them, all that happened was that they believed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God filled them with the Holy Spirit. They didn't need to keep any of these ritualistic laws that were from the old Jewish system. Paul had his say as well about how he was seeing the Gentiles come to God. And then we come to verse 13. It says, when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon had described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things. Things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. We'll stop there, sorry. So, James then goes on to say, we'll, we'll just ask them to do a few things. Nothing um, heavy burden. Just refrain from eating meat that's got blood in it, sexual immorality, things like that. Just a few things. We're not going to put a big burden on them, particularly the burden of circumcision. That's quite a big step to take, isn't it, guys? <laughs> now, James is quoting from the Old Testament book of Amos, prophet Amos, and he talks about rebuilding David's fallen tent. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes read through the Bible and you come across something and you just read it and pass over it and don't stop to think what it might mean. So what does it mean to restore David's fallen tent? Well, to understand this, we need to go right back into the Old Testament to Moses and the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Because on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, they stopped at Mount Sinai where God spoke to them, God gave them the law, and God gave Moses the instruction to build a tabernacle. That's what it may have looked like. That's, um, that's a, a, an actual reproduction, full size, that's been made um, in the deserts of Judea. So you've got this um, 
curtained courtyard with a big altar for uh, the, just inside the door for burning the, um, the sacrifices. Then there's a, a big bowl for the priest to wash, do the ceremonial washing. And then you have this inner tent. Now, I could spend all day with you talking about the symbolism of this. We won't get into that this morning. But inside the tent, it was divided into a two-third, one-third split. And in the first part, there were three specific things. There was a seven-branch candlestick. There was an altar where incense were burned continually. And there was a table with bread on it. And then there was this curtain. And the other side of the curtain was this box overlaid with gold, which is known as the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the bottom part, the box, is the Ark of the Covenant. The top part is called the Mercy Seat. And it's where God's presence came and dwelt. It was the place where God said he would be in the midst of his people, Israel. And if you look at the plan of how they set out their camp, it was like a huge cross with this thing right in the centre. And God's presence was right there in the centre of the Israelites' camp. And uh, this, uh, this whole setup, when the Israelites moved, was packed up and uh, carried by certain of the Levites. Uh, different uh, uh, tribes of the Levites were given the job of carrying different parts of the tabernacle. And every time they stopped, they'd set it up and God's presence would come and they would burn their sacrifices, do the things that they did for 40 years while they were traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. When they got to the promised land, the Ark of the Covenant was carried by the priests into the Jordan River. And it was as the priests who were carrying the Ark stepped into the river that about five miles upstream, the water stopped flowing. And by the time the people were about half a mile back from the priests, got to the river's edge, it had stopped flowing and they were, they were able to cross over on relatively dry land over into the promised land. So the, the Ark of the Covenant in that sense was, was used symbolically as God stepping into the river, holding it back so that they could cross into the promised land. And um, they took it into battle with them. When they went round the walls of Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant was carried by the priests in the front as they went round one day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. And they also gave a great shout and the walls came down. It also went into other battles. But on one occasion, during the time of King Saul, so we're talking some 400 years after they've entered the Promised Land. During the time of King Saul, King Saul very presumptuously went into battle against the Philistines. And he took the Ark of the Covenant with him. But God wasn't with him in that battle. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and taken. And uh, they put it in the, um, in the temple of Dagon, their god. And when they got up the next morning, when they went into the temple to worship the next day, the god was lying face down on the floor. So they stood it back up again. And the next morning they went into the temple to do their worship. And the, the the um, idol of Dagon was not only on the floor, but his head was broken off. Yeah. And uh, they, this concerned them. They thought, there's something powerful about this box. God's presence. 
So they moved it to different villages and towns, and everywhere it went, there was problems, and people got ill, and all sorts. Till in the end, they thought, we can't have this in our land anymore. It's causing too much hassle and problem. So they put it on a cart and sent it back in the direction of Israel. And uh, it, um, it was taken, uh, or it was, it was found um, in a town called Kiriath-Jerim. And it was taken to the house of a man called Abinadab. And his son Eliezer was set apart to look after the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where it stayed for 20 years in this man's house. By now Saul has gone, he's died, David has become king and he thinks we need to get the Ark of the Covenant which represents God's presence back into Jerusalem to the centre of our culture. So David decides to fetch it and he goes with a cart and he puts it on a cart and starts to bring it back and there's some people Um, leading the cart and the cart gets a bit wobbly at one point and they think it's going to fall off and this one man called user puts his hand out to to steady it and struck down dead and David is absolutely petrified about this we've done something wrong here guys so took it off the cart and they put it in the house of a man called Obed-Edom and it was there for three months and while it was there God bless this man Oh, yeah, all the good things that he wanted. I don't know, it doesn't say what, but it says that God blessed the house of Obed-Eden because the Ark of the Covenant was there. Anyway, David inquires from the priests, what's the right way we should carry this? And they say, well, it needs to be carried on poles on your shoulder. That's how God told us to do it. So he goes back with some Levites and they bring it back to Jerusalem. And David is so happy to be doing this that he starts dancing and it gets hot so he takes his coat off and his cloak off and he's in his underwear and he's dancing and he's dancing and his wife is looking at him from the window of their residence and she thinks what an idiot fancy making a fool of you he is the king of the country making a fool of himself dancing around in his underwear before God but you know because she despised David And he's honouring God in that way. She never had the children she wanted. That was how God disciplined her because of her contempt for David and his worship. Now, this portable tabernacle has not been mentioned. It's thought that it was still in the town of Shiloh, where it had been when Saul had taken the... Ark of the Covenant, into battle. So David brings it back to Jerusalem and he builds a little gazebo, really. Not much more than that. You see, when God tells Moses to make this tabernacle, it's called a mishkan, which means a dwelling place. When David builds this, he calls it a sukkah, which is like a little portable tent. And so there is a difference in what David built to what God asked Moses to build. And we have this little window in history during the reign of King David where the Ark of the Covenant is in this little gazebo 
And it's open to everybody. Before, it was locked away in the mid- middle of a, of a tent, which only the high priest could go into. The people weren't even allowed into the tabernacle. They used to bring their, their sacrifices to the door of it. Only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle. Only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. But here in David's reign, it's open for everybody. Anybody can come and worship. Anybody can come and pray to God as his presence is there. Anybody. It's open to all. So the point James is making when he speaks to the church and to these church leaders is that God is not propping up an old religious system with Jesus added on. God's making himself available to all. Everyone, not hidden away anymore, not accessible to a few select people, all can come into his presence. That's the message we have, folks. It's the message we have for the world, that God is available to everybody. All who call on the name of the Lord, it says, will be saved. We can all come to God. So this is the message we have, that we've been reconciled to God through Jesus and access to the Father is now open to us all. I've put here what an awesome message we have. Yes. And as disciples of Jesus, we should be excited about this. should be excited about talking about it. You know, what other group of people can go and say, you know, you can have a, a relationship with God. You can come into his presence. You can know God personally. God can talk with you and you can talk with God, just like the people did in that little window that we have that of David's time. So a lot of things in the Old Testament are shadow pictures of the bigger thing that Jesus was bringing. And this little time of David's reign, when the presence of God was available to all, was that little window. So we heard over 350 people came into a relationship with Father at New Day. And can I tell you, 300 more came to the Lord when Wanaloba took two truckloads of food up into the semi-arid area over the last two weeks. Yeah. We were, we were, we were able to send uh, the, the money to, to move two truckloads of food just before I went on holiday. And um, I had a message from him, um, a text message, a WhatsApp message, um, I think on Friday, to say that 300 people had come to faith while he was there, and that when he goes back next time, the plan is to baptise them. Whoa! So, are are we doing okay for time? So this brings me to my second point. And it's slightly different. You see, one of the things that God did as well was he appointed seven festivals for the Israelites to have each year. Are they gonna, is it going to work? Yeah. So there was the festival of unleavened bread. There was the festival of the Passover and the festival of first fruits. These three festivals all run into each other in Around Easter time for us, it's the, uh, it's the start of the Jewish New Year. Unleavened bread, that's where for a week they ate bread without yeast in it. 
Passover was where they remembered the angel of death passing over them because they'd put the blood on the doorpost of their house and they were kept safe. And first fruits is because it's the barley harvest time. And uh, so they, what they do is they, um, early in the morning on the first Sunday after Passover, they go out to the fields and the priests um, harvest a, a selection of barley and they take it back and it's roasted and made into barley loaves and then the priests hold it up and wave it in front of the people and to, to God as thanks, as a first fruit offering that what they've been blessed with is going to be representative of the big blessing of harvest for that year. So these three events all run at the same time. And Jesus fulfilled these three events because the unleavened bread, yeast, represents often sin in the Bible. So Jesus was doing away with sin when he died on the cross. He's the Passover lamb, the one that died on our behalf so that we could be kept safe. And guess what? He rose Saturday night, first day of the week, Sunday morning, when the priests were out gathering the barley crop. Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. Yeah? So Jesus fulfilled those feasts. What's the next feast? Pentecost, thank you, yes. Or in Jewish Shavuot. And it's 49 days, count 49 days, seven sevens, and then the next day is Pentecost. And for the Jewish people, that's the time when they remember that God gave them the Torah on Mount Sinai, the law. What did he give the church on Pentecost? The Holy Spirit. So... One was the word and the other's the spirit. And you need both, word and spirit. Yeah, so Pentecost is next. And then at the uh, autumn time, three more festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And these are the three feasts that are yet to be fulfilled by Jesus. Okay. Now, what happens between these two? So uh, at uh, Unleavened Bread, we've got the barley harvest. Yeah. Between Pentecost and the Feast of Trumpets, we have the main harvests of the land, which are the wheat harvest, the fig harvest, and the grape harvests of the land. So between Pentecost and Trumpets, what's happening Harvest. You see, we are living in the period between Pentecost and the trumpets. We're living in the harvest time. This is the time for harvest. Jesus said the fields are white to harvest. What did he ask us to do? Pray for the laborers, the workers. And what happens when you pray for things that are needed? God says to you, you do it. <laughs> You do it. Yes, you do it. We're called to be the harvesters out in that harvest field. And we have a great message. We have a message that God's available to all of us 
because of Jesus. We can have relationship with the Father. So I want to encourage you this morning, as disciples, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a disciple. And as disciples, we were told to go and make disciples. That means we take the message that Jesus is available to all, that Father is available to us all through Jesus. And we are sent to go and reap that harvest of souls. So can I encourage you this morning not to just relax back in your old ways of living. Remember some of those people that were arguing with Paul and Peter, they were believers, but it says they were Pharisees, which means they'd come to faith in Jesus, but they were still trusting in the old system. Let's not trust in the old stuff. Let's go out in the new life that we have in Jesus and share the good news that we can have relationship with the Father through Jesus. And let's go and reap that great harvest for the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. I pray, Father, that it will inspire and encourage us to go and serve you wholeheartedly and to see, as we've heard, 350 young people, 300 people in Kenya, but we want it to happen here in Harpenden, Father, as we go out as your people to reap a harvest for your kingdom in this town that you've put us in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.